0: To kick off, we're really going to cover, I think, what's going to be an incredibly interesting topic, and I hope that you will learn a lot from it. So obesity and weight management honestly seems to be the hottest topic at the moment, both in medical literature as well as in the lay press. It feels like every Medscape article we get is about a new blockbuster molecule that is going to change the lives of individuals living with overweight and obesity. So to unpack this and really get to the bottom of what obesity is, what I thought to do is to kind of kick off our discussion with a case. So I'm going to kind of sketch this scenario for us. We're going to introduce you to Jennifer, who is 28 years of age, and she comes to seek help regarding weight management and sits in the consultation room with her rather lean mom. And I'm always a bit concerned when a 28-year-old comes into practice accompanied by a parent, but there may be a reason for this. And Jennifer has no background medical history. So she's not being diagnosed with any chronic conditions, pertinently high blood pressure or diabetes or anything that might be weight-related. She, on examination, is found to be normotensive. Her body mass index is 31, so in the obese range. And she comes with some lab assessments done recently, which found her fasting plasma glucose to be quite normal at 5.4 and essentially a normal lipogram. And so, Justin, the first question I want to ask you would you suggest that Jennifer has a disease? Maybe explain to us kind of why you would uh, say those things.
1: If we have a look at the Canadian Obesity Guidelines, which were published in 2020 and essentially are the Sort of guidebook for how the world should be managing people living with obesity. They define obesity as excess adiposity, so excess fat, that causes a complication in physical health and well being. And these complications can have an effect on sort of physical health, mental well being, and quality of life. We are trying to move away from using body mass index or BMI as the sole criterion to define obesity, but we still do use it on a population-based level. So despite what a recent Twitter um, sort of explosion was about, I think body mass index is still useful. Unfortunately, we know that obesity as a chronic disease, and it's been accepted as a chronic disease for over a decade by many international medical organizations, is defined by relapses, so people will lose weight, and remissions, they will regain the weight. And why that happens is the crux of why it's so difficult for patients to keep their weight off long-term. Does this patient have a disease? Technically, with a body mass index of over 30, you might argue yes. Should she be offered treatment, according to the Canadian obesity guidelines, with a body mass index of 30 or more, even if she does not have a complication of her adiposity as yet, she should be offered medical therapy. That patient would still be defined as having a disease and should be offered treatment.
0: And look, I don't disagree with you. And in, in a way, we've we've sketched a scenario of a patient who's coming to you because of a concern. So, in in a way, whether that be a mental health issue um, or when we evaluate her further, at you know, as we will discuss in a moment, in a way, that's easier because she she comes to you seeking help. Yeah. I suppose the question I have always in my mind is sort of, and I'm being cynical here, obviously, is: Are we not? over-medicalizing, uh, sort of overweight and obesity? i kind of asking this question for two reasons. Number one is, yes, we now have molecules and we have uh, treatments that really do work, and we're going to chat about those in, in, in great depth in a moment. But are we in some ways not sort of, I want to kind of say almost being almost fat biased because now we have drugs that we can offer people so we've been trying to sort of in medic in in the medical world sort of move away from just saying somebody's you know overweight or obese because we haven't had a lot to offer them before but now that we do aren't we kind of like sort of moving back to a place we want everybody to be thin again is 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 that not a danger of kind of calling obesity a disease
1: you know it's, it's obviously a philosophical discussion because we do have medication now that is probably changing the landscape of how we manage patients living with obesity. We know that her risk of metabolic, mechanical, and mental health issues are significantly increased as her body mass index continues to increase. So yes, there is a risk factor. She may not yet have one of those manifestations but she has a significantly increased risk. So there's an argument to be made about managing risk. Second thing is that, you know, we know that Jennifer's obesity is going to continue to progress. We know that patients do not lose weight if there is no intervention. And we know that they continue to gain weight in women, particularly in the midlife, throughout the next couple of decades. I think your question is actually about sort of economics and health economics. Is it economically viable to intervene in a patient who is currently metabolically and mechanically well? The answer is probably no. On an individual level, would that benefit her in the long term? Most likely, yes. I think the question is, is more health economics related than, you know, um, health related? Because essentially we're speaking about the cost of preventing complications, versus the cost of managing them when they arise, because the cost of anti-obesity therapy, whether that's just lifestyle intervention, which doesn't work long-term, or whether it's anti-obesity medication, is very expensive.
0: But I think you make a good point. I mean, there are good studies that have looked at this concept of metabolically healthy obesity. And if you follow those people sort of over 10 years, fairly large numbers of those people do not remain metabolically well. So in that case, excess adiposity or a high BMI, however we want to define that, certainly is a risk factor for a number of diseases, as I think most of us would, would know. Okay, so, so let's sort of take it a little bit further with Jennifer. And so she's presenting to us now with concerns about her weight, a question that many patients in such a situation would ask, I think their practitioners that they're seeing, would be about sort of the root cause or the underlying reason for their overweight and obesity. And it always feels to me as though I wish there was something that we could magically change for many of these individuals. But in reality, the answer to that is is there usually isn't. And so what I want to kind of highlight for practitioners is, What sort of testing from a sort of biochemical or from a examination point of view would be relevant when evaluating an individual presenting for weight management?
1: If we look at at obesity and the causes, genetics does play a significant role. So genetics, and this is a polygenetic inheritance, there are very few monogenic causes of obesity, which means that there's one specific gene that's caused obesity. And monogenic causes of obesity usually present in kids below the age of five, with morbid obesity, and often other features of an endocrinopathy. These are not the kind of people you are going to be managing in your daily practice. So genetics contributes about 40 to 70% of obesity. If you're born to two parents who have obesity, your risk of developing obesity is 10 times increased. So genetics plays a significant role. Apart from that, we know that obesity is a complex and multifactorial disease primarily a disease of the brain. The underlying cause of obesity is an is abnormal hunger and abnormal satiety. And yes, there are inputs that might modify that. Things like stress, sleep, eating behaviors, um, mental health. But at the core, that is the abnormality that has to exist for the disease to develop. Patients do not need to have another hormonal issue accounting for their obesity. For example, I often get asked, doctor, will you please test my thyroid again, even though it's been documented to be normal on multiple previous occasions. Hypothyroidism does not cause obesity. At most, hypothyroidism will cause about a three to five kilogram gain in weight. It's not unreasonable to do a screening TSH for these patients because it's a common disease, but other endocrinopathies like Cushing syndrome, should certainly not be part of routine testing. What's more important is to document the complications of the adiposity. So to look for metabolic issues and do fasting glucose and A1C. And on that topic, insulin assays are a complete waste of time. Do not do them. To do the blood pressure, to do the lipogram and to do screening liver functions, to look for mechanical cause um, complications. So if appropriate, send your patient for a sleep study. And then finally, to screen for mental health issues. So no, doing routine testing, including DNA and genetic analyses, are a complete waste of time and money.
0: No, I think that's that's super valid. I mean, especially from the point of view that these tests are expensive, they're not going to add anything to management, and the patients rather should spend that money on therapy, which will actually make a difference. I really like the fact that you belabored the not doing an insulin assay. It's something which is... A bugbear of mine and yours, I do know, it's it's a very poor assay with poor reproducibility. If you did it three days in a row, it's going to kind of be all over the place. And and we really want to emphasize that insulin resistance is far more a consequence of excess weight than it is a cause. So So please, yeah, it's not a test that is helpful in any way. Now you touched a little bit on it earlier Jocelyn in terms of BMI and whether or not that's still valid and I know we've we've discussed this ourselves and at a population level quite correctly what what other sort of anthropometrics would be more valuable than just body mass index when assessing a patient and documenting where we where we're starting from
1: BMI also becomes sort of an important question in terms of guiding clinical management because a BMI just tells you how big someone is it just tells you how much sort of adiposity and muscle there is as a whole. It doesn't tell you anything else about that individual. So in patients with a body mass index between 25 and 35, doing a waist circumference or waist to hip ratio is a cheap and very, very reliable way of doc- of predicting metabolic risk. Every patient who comes to you for management of their metabolic health should have a waist circumference documented. And remember, that is also a gender and population-specific cutoff. If you have the luxury, in-body composition scale is really helpful in terms of quantifying the patient's fat mass, muscle mass, and water mass. And that can also tell you where the fat is sitting, because we know that the distribution of body fat, not just how much there is, is a really important predictor of the metabolic complications of excess adiposity.
0: And I think also quite a useful thing in terms of tracking, you know, changes that that happen. One of the questions was about specifically looking at visceral adiposity, which obviously is something which is very important as a risk factor for metabolic complications. And I think you've spoken to the fact that sort of looking at that with something like an in-body scale or some other assessment I mean, the gold standard probably is whole body DEXA, but that is quite expensive to sort of look at where the excess fat is being carried, because that really does determine how risky that extra extra adiposity is. So I want to just for the sake of time dive into kind of therapy, if you don't mind. Why does... Telling people to eat less and move more, not work. Why does that just not work? Because, you know, that's what we've been doing for decades, that until we've had molecules that really made a difference, yet since 1980, the numbers of people living with obesity has sort of trebled, if not more. So clearly it's not effective, yet that's what we tell most people still.
1: So I think just to correct that, Mm -hmm. diet and exercise is effective. It's effective in the short term. So I always tell my patients, if I put you into a room and I fed you 800 kilocalories a day, and I put you on a treadmill for three hours a day, you are going to lose weight. There's no question about that. So calorie restriction in the short term, using diet alone is going to make your patient lose weight. The issue comes in, and this is the Achilles heel of weight management, is helping your patients to maintain weight loss. And this is where drug therapy and in the appropriate patient metabolic surgery are of vital importance. And just quickly, the reason why that's so difficult. Patients regaining weight has nothing to do with their self-discipline, their motivation, being lazy, or any of those terrible mantras that we label patients with. The reasons patients can't maintain weight loss is due to two compensatory physiological mechanisms. And this is where the drugs are aimed. So number one, when we lose weight, our appetite starts to increase and our energy expenditure in terms of kilocalories per day drops with every kilogram of weight we lose. So essentially we are hungrier and our metabolism slows down. And those compensatory mechanisms are physiologically, physiological adaptations to try and get us back to the weight that we were at. They're protective. Yeah.
0: yeah. So
1: a lot of the new generation anti-obesity medication Like GLP-1 receptor agonists are addressing the increased appetite that happens after a period of weight loss.
0: Hmm. It's always sort of very disheartening when you have that discussion with patients. You know that the body really does fight you when it comes to sort of the maintenance of that of that weight loss. And but but I think in a way it is also an important sort of message to bring across to patients that it is not their fault that they reach a plateau or that weight regain happens after a period of time with diet and lifestyle intervention. Because I think many people live with that guilt of feeling, well, okay, I just didn't try hard enough or I should be doing more. And as you explained it quite correctly, it is a physiological uh, compensation. So exercise it, it, at least in my practice the moment we start talking about weight management the first thing people sort of will say is well i don't have time to exercise and i always want to emphasize that exercise actually plays a relatively small role in terms of weight uh, management and in my mind i've always thought of it just as a weight maintenance tool do you want to maybe just speak to that and how you pitch exercise to your patients oh.
1: Every day I have usually a sort of a, a, a middle-aged woman sitting in front of me and saying, listen, Jocelyn, I recently joined boot camp. I'm going three to five days a week and I'm not losing. Me. And, you know, that is because the, the predominance of our energy burning is due to our basal metabolic rate. Actually, very little is due to formal physical activity. So, so you're 100% right, right saying exercise plays a very important role in weight maintenance. In the region of 200 to 300 minutes per week of moderate to high-intensity exercise. Now, that's a hell of a lot.
0: That is a lot.
1: In my opinion, exercise is really important in weight management, is a focus on resistance training and muscle building. Because we know that lean muscle has a very important part to play in maintaining our basal metabolic rate. And especially as women, as we get old and we enter into the perimenopause, we start losing lean muscle. And that contributes to our difficulty in managing our weight. So what I think is important to emphasize to your patients who are on a weight loss journey, just start walking. So start being active and then focus instead on weight training. So actually building lean muscle in sort of as little as 30 minutes twice a week can see significant gains in terms of lean muscle mass over a period of time. So that's the only advice in terms of exercise I would I would give to my patients. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, you cannot outrun your fork. So rather focus on maintaining lean muscle.
0: I like that. You can't outrun your fork. Okay. So now let's go into, I think, the nitty gritty of the drugs that we might consider for patients. So you mentioned earlier the Canadian guidelines. Would you maybe just very briefly in a 30-second in a, in a sort of uh, stance, just maybe highlight for us what are the indications for drug therapy or when should we be offering anti-obesity drugs to patients?
1: The current guidelines still suggest offering patients with a body mass index of 27 or more with a complication of their adiposity like diabetes, like hypertension, like sleep apnea, or just having a body mass index of 30 or more are indications to offer your patient anti-obesity medication. So 27 yeah. or more with the comorbidity of your of your adiposity or just having a BMI of 30 or more and you don't have to have any complications like Jennifer, who you mentioned in the
0: beginning. Yeah. In South Africa, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, we've got fentamine, which is obviously a short-term drug. We've got GLP-1 therapy in the form of liraglutide and maybe semaglutide. You can tell me what you think about that. And then we've got a combination of naltrexone and bupropion as an option as well. And we've also got sort of a drug I don't use very much, Orlistat or Zenical. If you had to sort of select a drug, how do you go about choosing the right drug for the right patient? Or do you have a specific drug that you would preferentially use? And if so, why?
1: So look, and I, I think as a, as a disclaimer up front, a big limiting factor here, and I'm sure a lot of you listening in today realize that, is availability of a lot of these drugs, specifically GLP-1 receptor agonists. So that's an issue. The cost is also an issue. And the cost, specifically in terms of South Africa, where patients are paying privately for these medications, is a big factor in terms of considering therapy. The majority of patients will benefit and respond to GLP-1 therapy. And this stands for glucagon-like-peptide-1 receptor ag- agonists or analogs. And this is liraglutide, which is registered for anti-obesity treatment in South Africa, And sumaglutide, which is not registered for anti-obesity therapy in South Africa as yet. The registration is pending. However, it is registered in many countries overseas. When we're looking at therapeutic options, the GLP-1 group really stands head and shoulders above the rest in terms of efficacy, safety, and tolerance. The other drugs are not as effective in the long term. Duramine is effective in the short term, but not effective in the long term and have a significant side effect profile, specifically the duramine, fenteramine, and or wilpropionaltrexone groups. So GLP-1 therapy, standard of care for most patients who require anti-obesity medication.
0: Now, if we think about how the drugs really work, I mean, what's the main mechanism of action? You mentioned earlier that they sort of have an impact on sort of that abnormal physiological mechanism. So maybe just how do the drugs really work? What do they do for our patients?
1: GLP-1 receptor agonists, for those of you who are not familiar with the class of drug, were initially developed to manage people with type 2 diabetes because of their mechanism of action. So they're an agonist or analog to GLP-1, which is a hormone that is made by your gut. Now, we know that this hormone has a big role to play in managing hunger and satiety. So how these drugs work is they act as an analogue of of GLP-1, and they speak to the part of your brain which manages hunger and satiety. And that's located deep in the hypothalamus, a place you actually have no control over. These drugs help to increase satiety, so people feel much fuller earlier into a meal, and they reduce hunger, so people don't feel hungry between meals. In the beginning, they also slow or delay gastric emptying. In the beginning, patients often feel overly full on very low doses of these drugs, but that effect gradually wanes after a couple of weeks and is actually not the main mechanism responsible for weight loss. Drugs work by increasing satiety or the feeling of fullness and reducing hunger. They do not work on metabolism and they do not address fat cells themselves. A lot of your patients will tell you, but listen, doctor, I don't eat anything, or I eat very little. My husband tells me I eat nothing, and I'm so active. Notoriously, dietary histories and physical activity histories are underreported and overreported. So people underestimate how much they're actually eating, and this is part of the obesity as a disease process and they overestimate how much they're exercising. So those things have to be treated with caution, and a diet history actually may not be that helpful at all.
0: And I think what's really important to understand is the drugs work while you're on them. The moment you stop these medications, weight regain is essentially a given. So in some ways, much like we said earlier, this is a chronic disease. We don't stop antihypertensive medication. We don't stop statins once your LDL is a target. Similarly, we will not be able to stop these medications if you respond. And just correct me if I'm wrong, Justin, we kind of want to say somebody responds to medication if they've lost a minimum of 5%. And with most of the modern GLP-1 therapies, we're kind of seeing between 10 and 15% body weight loss at one year, following which we won't see further weight loss, but we'll see that very important weight maintenance. Would would that be a good summary of how the drugs sort of would would work?
1: Absolutely. So being on the maximum dose for three months with a weight loss of at least 5% of body weight at that follow-up is regarded as a response to treatment. And it's also important that you make clear to your patient, we don't know who's going to respond and who's not going to respond to these drugs. There's nothing about you as an individual if you don't respond to the drug. You just fall into that 15% of patients who won't necessarily respond to some GLP-1 therapy. Then yes, maximum weight loss with with these drugs is seen at a year. That doesn't mean patients can't lose more weight, but they have to do something additional above the drug that they're currently on. And Zane, the most important point of what you've just mentioned is that patients will most likely require long-term GLP-1 therapy or other anti-obesity medication to maintain their weight loss because of those physiological mechanisms we spoke about earlier. Doing a three to six month course of succenda, for example, is unfortunately in most patients going to lead to weight regain once the drug is discontinued.
0: Then to close, just to summarize our discussion today, I think it's very clear from everything that uh, Jocelyn told us that we accept now in 2024 that obesity is a chronic disease and that most patients will require chronic therapy to be able to maintain weight loss. We spoke about the importance of not doing unnecessary tests to look for any other underlying cause, obesity is a chronic disease and testing should rather be focused on the complications of excess weight gain, such as looking at glucose and lipids, for example. We emphasize the fact that diet and lifestyle is largely ineffective in the long run, that it will help patients initially lose weight, but that for the majority of patients, they will not be able to keep off weight through these lifestyle interventions alone. And that this means that most patients who live with this disease will need long-term pharmacotherapy. We didn't even get to talk about obesity surgery or metabolic surgery. So that might be something we could touch on in the future. Thank you very much.